0: Once again, gracious God, help us to remember now, this is your word. You've inspired it, breathed it out. It is inerrant, it is without error. It's your truth, God. And you've told us that you will accomplish the very thing you intend to accomplish through your word going out. So do that. Spirit, move. Spirit, convict and encourage and comfort and lead us closer to God. May we know God more as a result of this text, God. May we know you. May we delight in you more. And Father, may it make a difference in our lives, not just for today, but may it Make a difference for this week, for this month, Lord, for this season of life and beyond. God, thank you that you give us the promises you've given us. And may you take them and plant them in our hearts so that we believe them and act upon them. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Surely we all know who Charlie Brown is. I think that you know who Charlie Brown is. He's been called the lovable loser. He's kind of an anxious little guy. Often talked about his his fears and his worries um, to Lucy and to Linus. I found a quote of his this week that I want to share with you, a quote of Charlie Brown's. I think he's talking to Linus whenever he says this, but listen to the words of Charlie Brown. I have a new philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. (laughs) What does he mean? He means that he has come up with a new way to cope with his fear and his anxiety, his dread. That is by putting a cap on the amount of time upon which he will allow himself to focus his fear. He's going to limit his fearing, his dreading to one day at a time. And that's the way he is going to, to deal with his fear and his anxiety. Why did you laugh when I, when I said that? Well, probably for, for multiple reasons. One of which, it's just kind of humorous to imagine a kid talking about dread, you know, at all. But you probably also laugh because you can relate. You can relate. And I think that's part of the, uh, some of the genius of Charles Schultz and writing Charlie Brown relatability. You know what it's like to look into the future and compile a running list of experiences and people, events, and possibilities that you fear. The arrival of? You know what that's like. There's a lot of things in this world to be fearful of, isn't there? There's a lot of things to be afraid of, and and we can easily become overwhelmed and crippled by fear as we let our minds wander into the future unchecked. As we let our minds wander into the what-ifs of tomorrow and the next day. The next day after that. So it kind of sounds reasonable to only allow yourself to dread one day at a time, right? Charlie Brown is doing something that we often try to do when we are experiencing fear. That is, he's finding some way to deal with it so that it's, it's not as gripping, it, it's not as debilitating. So we, we may try this by Attempting to convince ourselves that it's not as bad as we think it is. Or we may compare ourselves to other people whose lives seem a lot more fearful than our lives so we feel better about the situation. That's how we might cope. Or we try to persuade ourselves that that our situation has extenuating circumstances. Right? That kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like me. And those are really only some minor defenses that we use against the fears that we're confronted with. Um, other times, we, we may try to soften the impact of our fears by building up our resumes or stockpiling money into savings or making friends with the right people or educating ourselves as much as possible on some issue. And that's how we, we deal with our fears or confront our fears. Maybe I didn't mention your your coping mechanism of choice, but you just fill in the blank. What do you do? These are all ways, whether big or small, that we humans try to, to cope with our fears. But they are just that. They are just ways to cope. They don't make the fears go away, they don't make the fears leave. They may make us feel a little bit better about the fears but the fears still remain. The text we're going to look at today, it's full of good news. It's full of good news. The good news that you don't have to be afraid. It's full of the good news that you don't have to simply cope with your fears. You don't have to only have moments where you can only tell your fears to go to the back seat. You can have freedom from fear. You can pull the van over and tell the fears to get out. See, because the Bible tells us that God is stronger than our fears. That's why I'm so glad that Charlie picked that song. The Bible tells us that God is stronger than our fears. You know, your money isn't stronger than your fears. What if the stock market crashes? You know, your relationship's are not stronger than your fears because people move. People betray you. People will eventually die. Your your resume isn't stronger than your fears. What if your field of expertise is in less demand in the future or what if it becomes obsolete entirely? Those things aren't stronger than your fears. but God is. God is. Turn with me in your Bibles to our text is Psalm 46 this morning. Psalm 46. As we'll see from this psalm, there is nothing that stops God in his tracks. There's nothing to which God looks in his arsenal and says, I I don't know about that one. uh, I don't know if I've had anything to cover that. God is stronger than our fears. And if he is, and he is stronger, then we can be confident in him. We can see those fears dispelled because we also know that he's with us. Not only is God stronger than our fears, we are told from the scriptures that he is with us this God who's stronger. So, Follow along with me as I read Psalm 46. The sons of Korah write, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. This morning, we're only going to find two points here in our text. And they are, number one, God is our fortress when the immovable is moved. God is our fortress when the immovable is moved. And we also see that God is our fortress when nations rise and fall. He's our fortress when nations rise and fall. So let's look at our first point. God is our fortress when the immovable is moved. Look with me again at verses one through three. The sons of Korah tell us that God is our refuge and he is our strength. He is our refuge. That is, he's our shelter. He is the one to whom we run in the midst of fearful circumstances as in a storm. And he is our strength. He is the one who is powerful, though we are weak. I I love the rock-solid simplicity of this text of Scripture. God does not simply lead us to a place where we can get refuge and strength, right? He does not simply tell us where we can find shelter from the storm. He doesn't just point us in the right direction. And, And he doesn't just tell us how to unlock our inner strength so that we can find shelter and refuge and strength in ourselves. No. That's not true. No. The text says God is our refuge and strength. He didn't just point us in the right direction. He is our refuge and strength. See, I think that children illustrate this well. When they are in a situation, and is truly fearful for them, I'm sure you've seen it, a child that's truly afraid, what happens? Only mommy or daddy will do, right? Only mommy or daddy will do. Now, it doesn't matter for Justin, uh, my second oldest son, it doesn't matter how much I might stand there and tell him, you can do it, son. You can do it, just, just whatever it is, you know, step out. And, you know, it's okay, take, you know, take a step. Whatever it is you're fearful about, you know, just get into the pool, whatever it may be. I'll sit there and say, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. I can, I can preach that to him until I'm blue in the face. But he's not moving until I grab his hand. He's not moving until daddy comes and helps. And you know, too, that kids can smell a counterfeit a mile away you're not daddy. You're not mommy. That ain't flying, right? They know. I mean, even if you, know, you see a kid and they, they've got their eyes closed, just kind of waiting for mommy or daddy. Someone else grabs them. They, they're not looking, but they know that's not mommy or daddy. They can feel it somehow. They just know. They can smell a counterfeit. When children are afraid, nothing or n- no one else will do besides mommy or daddy. And you know what? Humanly speaking, they're right. If we're we're talking about just humans on this earth, there's no no other person that's going to care for them like their mother or their father. You know, we can learn something from kids. We must believe this about God too. We must believe that there are no other alternatives. No counterfeits for me. I'm I'm scared, I'm afraid. I'm not going to turn to something that will just break or crumble eventually. I'm going to go to the one who cares for me most, the one who is stronger. Always, no matter what the fear is, he's stronger. No alternatives, no counterfeits for me, please. Only God will do. We must believe this about God. Look with me at another text that kind of, helps us see God as refuge a little more emphatically, and that's Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. Flip over there with me. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. Listen to David as he he writes, and just listen to the descriptors here. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. And my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You think he's trying to tell us something? You see those descriptors? It's like David's saying, I'm going to find as many words as I can find to describe God as being strong, rock solid. And I'm going to put them all in these two verses so you understand something about where you should run whenever times are hard and you're afraid. Right? Just look at it, you know? Our strength. Rock is mentioned twice. Fortress, right? Deliver refuge, shield, stronghold. He is that for us. We use repetition to be emphatic. That's what David is doing here. And look, I love the the way that verse 3 starts after he's just gotten through telling us who God is. I call upon the Lord. Well, of course you call upon the Lord, David. Of course you do. If he's your stronghold, your shield, if he's your strength, if he's your rock, if he's your refuge, yeah, it makes sense you're going to call on him. Who else would you call? Who else are you going to call upon if he's all those things, right? David wants to impress upon us that God is our rock-solid stability against times of trouble. Let's go back to Psalm 46. Let's look again at verse 1. Here's another great truth about God that you need to cling to when you're afraid. It says in the text here, God is a very present help in trouble a very present help in trouble. Now, to help us understand what that means, let's, um, let's hear what the Holman Christian Standard Bible helps us, uh, or tells us. It's a, a translation that I think brings out the meaning of this text a little better for us. Here's how it translates this phrase. God is a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Isn't that great? He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. What a comfort, church. What a comfort. If you run to him in trouble, you will find him. He's not playing games with you. He's not playing hide and go seek with you. If you run to him in times of trouble, you will find him. And you will find his resources, his strength, his love, his affection, his compassion for you. His help will be there for you. Imagine for a moment with me. If we had all of the verses in the Bible that told us about God's strength. Uh, Imagine if we had all the parts of the Bible that describe his, his sovereign power. Every verse that told us that nothing thwarts him or nothing gets in his way. All the texts about him being in supreme authority and in control of kings and emperors. But then imagine that we didn't have any of the verses that told us that all of that strength, all that sovereignty is for us, for his glory. Imagine if we we knew that about God. We knew about all of his strength and his sovereign power, right? That That he is rock solid, unchanging, stable but then we didn't have any of the verses that told us that he is that for us, his people? That would seem cruel. It would seem malicious, wouldn't it? The church, praise God, that's not true. That's not true. The perfect strength and power and sovereignty of God are combined with his love and his mercy so that those who trust in him can look at Psalm 46.1 and they can read, God is our refuge and strength. And I'm in that hour because I trust in Him by His grace. I'm in that. He's a refuge and strength for me. For His glory, He's doing this for me. He is that for me. Praise Him. So we can be assured because of God's love to us through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, that God's strength becomes the help of God for us. Do you know what I'm saying? Because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died in the place of sinners and he rose again so that those who believe will have freedom from sin forgiveness. will be brought into the family of God. We'll be reconciled to God. We have those things. Because of Jesus's sacrifice, God's strength becomes his help for us. Whenever you are in the midst of fearful circumstances, church, you may think, if I could just get home, then I can get some relief and help, right? If I could just get back If I could just make it to the weekend, right? If I could just get a hold of so-and-so on the phone. If I could just make it to vacation. If I could just make it to the next stage of parenting. If I could just make it to retirement. If I could just make it through this next busy season, then I could have peace, rest, and relief. We think those thoughts, don't we? Can I tell you something? Church, God, He will be found now. He will be found for you now. Are, are you sitting in this pew today and you're in the midst of trouble, fearful circumstances, trials? You don't have to wait to get through the busy season. You don't have to wait till the next stage of parenting. You don't have to wait till the weekend. You don't even have to wait till you get home. Now, you can go to God. And expect that he is your refuge and strength, your help, present help in time of trouble. He is the helper who will always be found for those who seek him in their trouble. God is your source of strength and help in the middle of the trouble, right? Not after it. We do that sometimes. We just think, okay, I got, I, you know, I'll get through this next part and then I'll devote my, my time to the Lord praying and thanking and meditating on his scriptures and really really devoting myself to him. I'll have to get through this, this stage of life or i have to get to this place or gotta, you know, I'll just wait until I have this moment of relief or this season of relief and then I'll dedicate myself. Then I'll seek him. No, he's available now. He wants you to come now. He is strength and refuge and help for you now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't don't offend him like that. He is more than able to help you in the midst of your fearful circumstance. More than able. Don't offend him by saying, "I'll wait." You come to him now in the midst of this fearful circumstance, no matter how fearful it may be, that he gets the glory of being your help, even with these circumstances being pressure, intense pressure. That means he gets more glory when he helps you, right? Don't you think he wants to help you so that he receives more glory and you get the help of being helped? Oh. Don't think that he can't, that he's not available that he's not there, don't wait. He is a present help in time of trouble. Perhaps you've heard the bit about the greatest doctors being the ones that you have to wait the longest to get in to see. He's he's that good that you gotta wait months to get in to see him, right? Because he's such a great doctor. Well, that doesn't really help you if you're bleeding profusely today, you have to settle for a mediocre doctor. Not true with God. i have to wait. Now, because of Jesus, right? He's our mediator, He's the one that, that gave us the way to God. So that we come through Jesus, anytime we can get to God through Jesus, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter how intense the circumstances may be, you can get to your refuge and strength because of Jesus. You don't have to wait to see him. You don't have to wait to get an audience with the king, right? He's there now. Go to him. You know, he's not surprised about what you're going through. He's not surprised. He, he's, he's in charge of all of it. He's not like a, a doctor. You, 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 you might, with doctors, you, you know, you might be able to stump them with whatever you're going through. They might not have answers, right? They might not be of any help. You know, you go in there and you say, this is what's going on, and, and they, they really can't do anything for you. You know, or, or they're back while you're in the examination room, they're flipping through their textbooks. Like, what's going on here? You know, you didn't, didn't take God by surprise. He's got grace. He's got wisdom. He's got power and strength for you now. Now. That's just verse one. This is verse one. Look, at, look with me at verses two and three because God is our refuge and strength and present help in times of trouble we should not be afraid that's what the text says therefore we will not fear we will not fear we don't we should not be afraid and that's not just in regard to little everyday fears okay but even cataclysmic truly terrifying Fears for which you may not even have a category. You're like, there's something in my life I'm so terrified about. There's nothing else that ties me like this. And so I put it over here in a category by itself. It might be one of those kinds of fears for you. God is stronger. God is stronger. Why? Why do I say that? Because in verses 2 and 3, the sons of Korah are describing events that I would imagine are some of the most chaotic, petrifying things to live through. It says here, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Though those things are happening, I will not fear because God is my refuge and strength and present help in times of trouble. Right? So, here's the picture. There's a preacher, Mark Mullery. He suggests this picture here seems to be of an earthquake followed by a tsunami. Mountains are trading places with oceans, right? Mountains and oceans are trading places. And you know I've never been through either of those. I've never been through either of those natural disasters, but I have spoken with people who have been through earthquakes who live out in California, and it seems to be unsettling in a bit of a different way. Listen to what uh, author Sam Storm says about earthquakes in reference to this text. It's one thing to feel the force of a destructive tornado or the raging waters of a flood. It's another thing entirely when the ground under your feet begins to shake and convulse. Suddenly, all man-made props, all structures of support crumble and leave you helpless. There's something psychologically unsettling about an earthquake that isn't necessarily the case with other natural phenomena. All one's moorings, one's sense of balance, one's physical and emotional stability are swept away. There's nothing left to grab hold of. When you get out of a bounce house or you, you step off a, a ship, you know, kiss the ground, Right? Why do you run to go kiss the ground? Because the ground is solid, right? It's not moving underneath your feet. You don't like the, the instability. If you're your person doesn't like just doesn't like being on boats because of the rocking, or, or if you know, you've you been in a bounce house with your kids and you get on the ground, and there's something ah, comforting about being on solid ground again, right? Why do you kiss the ground? It's unmoving. Sure, stable, Right? where do you go when the immovable begins to move? Maybe you think you're safe from earthquakes because you live in the great state of Texas. Uh, Apparently we have some earthquakes here too. Not as strong as California of course, but we have some here. But maybe you think you're safe from earthquakes. You're like, that's not going to happen. Well, there are things that you do think are immovable in life. Even if you wouldn't admit it, you act like certain things are immovable for you, right? Think of a person or persons, some thing, some experience that has seemingly always been there for you, that you've learned to depend on, and that to remove it would mean devastation for you. Think of that. Is it family? A family were to move away, be swept away from you? Would you be devastated, friends? Maybe your freedom taken away from you, your health. What about the, the normal use of your body? What happens when the immovable begins to move? You know, what, may, may, maybe for you it's your house, your home. You know, this um, this last spring in, in April, April or May, we sold our house to, so uh, we could move out to California for two months to get church planning training. That's where we were this last summer. So we, we sold our house. We'd been in for seven years. It was the west side of Fort Worth. And uh, I tell you what, I didn't anticipate the fact that when I got out to California, uh, I, was, I was unsettled and disturbed because I didn't realize how much comfort and stability I had gotten from an actual place. That house had given me a lot of comfort, a lot of stability, a lot of familiarity. that that gave me peace and realized how much of it I sought in in a place that I could go home to and it was the same place all the time until I got away from that place and uh, went somewhere else that didn't feel like home. What is it for you? The thing you treat as immovable. One day it's gonna move. One day it's gonna move. Don't run to something else that will eventually move, right? Because you'll run to something else that will eventually move and, and the longer that you, um, you depend on that thing or that person or that place or whatever, the more that you'll, you'll lean, the heavier you'll lean, the more weight you'll put on it and then it'll be more devastating whenever it actually does move out from underneath you. Don't run to something else that's seemingly immovable. Move to God. Who is actually immovable. He is going to support you. There is, no, there is not too much weight you can put on him and your trouble. There's not, there's not something that's too heavy. No trial, no fear, no worry is too heavy. He is your strength, He is the fortress that will never be breached when all others have been taken by the enemy. He is the candle that will never burn out, though all others have slipped into darkness. He is the foundation that will never give way, though all others crumble beneath your feet. This psalm tells us that God is a helper. He's a helper who will always be found in times of trouble, and that is encouraging. But let me give you a warning. Sometimes God helps us in the way that we don't want to be helped. He doesn't help us in the ways that we expect him to help us or the ways we've asked him to help us. Sometimes he does, right? Our our desire is often that God would just take the, the trouble away, take the tribulation, take the trial, take it all away. That's the way we want God to help us in times of trouble. Sometimes he does that. I think more often, what he does is that he gives us himself in the midst of the trouble so that we will walk through the trouble in a way that's pleasing to him while he's growing us in our faith and we are learning to find our contentment in him. That's often the way he gives us help. He doesn't take the circumstances away. Sometimes he does that, but but oftentimes he says, I'm giving you myself. In the midst of this, all of my strength, my resources, my grace that I have given you because my son died in your place and you've trusted in him, I'm giving you that as you walk through this. I'm giving you me. I think it looks like this often. Look look at with me at Joshua 1. This is how uh, God's help in times of trouble often looks for us. Joshua 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 9. Let me give you a little context of what's going on here with uh, Joshua. The very beginning of the book, uh, Moses, the previous leader of Israel, he has died. He uh, died in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. He and the first generation of people who had come out of Egypt because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God, so they died there in the wilderness after 40 years of wandering. Okay, Now, we've got the second generation of Israel, and Joshua, um, he is their new leader. And he is tasked with leading them into the promised land, across the Jordan River and into the promised land to make war with these city-states like Jericho and Ai. God said, I will give you I will give these nations, these city-states, into your hands. I will deliver them over to you so that this land will be yours. But you've got to step out on faith. You've got to go do this. So listen to how God brings help to Joshua as the leader of Israel. I'll start in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that is that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river and the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun. Shall be your territory, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left In this time of trial for Joshua, did God say, listen, I actually went down to the Jordan River. It's going to be really hard for you to cross the Jordan River at this time of year. Pretty torrential, okay? So um, just hang out here. You guys chill at camp. I'll go, you know, I'll go over there and I'll just, I'll make sure that I take care of getting all those people out of the cities. You know, uh, Jericho, I'll clean it out. AI, same thing. Then I'll let you know when you guys can just kind of mosey on it. Okay, is that what he said? No. He said, "You're gonna lead these people, Joshua. Go, be strong, be courageous. You've got to go and you and and obey the, the word of the Lord. Obey the law, right? Meditate on it day and night, and be careful to do all that is in it. But go out there. You you go and out to these city states, and I want you to make war. Right? I want you to go over to them, but." In the midst of these commands, here's what he's doing. Look with me. He's reminding Joshua of past promise. Every place, verse 3, that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Right? Past promise. I'm I'm giving this to you. Okay? It's going to be yours. And he says later on that, he says, be strong and courageous, verse 6. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. I made this promise to their fathers. He's reminding them of past promises that this land will be theirs. And not only that, he's saying, be strong and courageous. You go take this land, okay, even though people are still living in it. But then he says, look at this, verse 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And he says it again in verse 9. Be strong and courageous. Listen, this fits into our context in Psalm 46. Do not be frightened, right? And do, do not be dismayed. Yeah, it's a scary circumstance, right? I mean, have you ever been in a circumstance like this where Joshua's going to go over to these, uh, these, these nations and he's going he's to make war with them? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you've got all these commandments. They've got to do something that's fearful. But God's saying, remember my promises, and by the way, I'm going to be with you. All my strength, all of my faithfulness, I'm going to be with you. That's true of us too, right? He gives us many commandments for us to, to obey so that we may please him as Christians, not, not to obey to earn salvation. That's not what we, we obey, so that we may please him as our father, right? But he gives us commands tells us how to live this Christian life. And then he reminds us of his promises. We see this all over the New Testament because even this this promise, the Lord, your God, uh, he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's repeated in Hebrews chapter 13. He reminds us of those promises and he gives us himself, right? He gives us himself. I think too, I mean, in the New Testament, we we have the Holy Spirit, right? And he's dwelling within us. You see how God gives us himself in trial? That's important for us to remember, church. It's not always that he's just going to remove the the tribulation or the trouble. Oftentimes it's. I'm reminding you of what I've already promised. And we have very great and precious promises, Peter tells us. We have very great and precious promises in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have many promises because of Jesus Christ and his death for us. And those promises... Our yes to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, they are yes for you. So we've got these promises. God reminds us of his promises and then he tells us, yeah, I'm with you. In fact, he gave us his Holy Spirit so that he dwells in us. Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's often how God helps us and is our refuge and strength. When we are in the middle of fearful circumstances, we can trust we can trust. Even if God doesn't help us the way that we want him to help us, doesn't mean he's not helping us. We can often, if we, if we think that he should help us a certain way, then that can lead to us having dangerous thoughts. Does God really care? Is prayer really effective? Those are dangerous thoughts. Just because God's not helping you the way you want to be helped, doesn't mean he's not helping you. Doesn't mean he's not there. Doesn't mean he's not a present help in times of trouble. And will always be found for you as a helper when you are in trouble. Remember that. Our second point for this morning God is our fortress when nations rise and fall. Look with me back at Psalm 46. The people of God can also fight fear with the knowledge that God is our fortress. Whenever there is upheaval in the nations, when world powers and nations rise up and are, are taken down, when wars take place and there is all of this desire for dominion in the world, to dominate, we can still trust God. He's still a refuge and strength. Look with me at verse 6. It says this, The nations rage the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Now listen to this. The same Hebrew word that is used to describe the mountains in verse 2, whenever it says be moved, right? That same word is the word, the Hebrew word that is used for kingdoms whenever they're told to, that they are actually tottering, right? It says the kingdoms totter. So the the Hebrew word for be moved in verse 2 and the Hebrew word for totter in verse 6 are the same Hebrew word. And the same Hebrew word is used for the waters in verse 3. It's rendered roar, okay? And it's, it's also the same word used to describe the nations when it says the nations rage, right? So roar and rage. So you've got these same Hebrew words that are used in this text. This seems to suggest that we're, whether we're talking about cataclysmic natural events or nations rebelling and falling, our God will continue to be a fortress for us. That's what Piper says, John Piper, in one of his sermons on this text. The point of using these same words like this is to show that whether the threat to us is from nature with earthquakes and floods and storms or from political upheaval and wars, whether our world is shaking from nature or from the nations, God is our refuge. Now, we know that nations and world powers rise and fall throughout history. They make war and they to dominate, and they take thousands upon thousands with them as they do. Right? It's scary. It's scary to consider the storm that may be coming. Right? The storm that may be coming. The attacks that may be that may come that will ensue, perhaps. The wars that may begin, the weapons that might be used, these are scary thoughts. Fears can grip us. Will the U.S. fall? Who will we fall to? Watching CNN and listening to talk radio can provoke in us this kind of doom and gloom mentality. But the sons of Korah in this text would invite us to do something. When we consider what's happening in the geopolitical realm, the sons of Korah would have us come behold the works of the Lord. Look with me at verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, he says. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Don't let your heart, church, be ruled by the what-ifs encouraged by our overexposure to talk radio or CNN or, or geopolitical affairs. Don't let your heart be dominated by that, by the fears that can be exacerbated by watching that stuff too much. Let your hearts be ruled by a trust in God that is brought on by considering what he has done, right? What he's done. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots. He stops wars. Are you scared? Have you looked at the past and you've seen some of the the, the wars that are taking place, uh, that have taken place, and you, and you think the, the wars that are, are currently taking place and, and you become fearful? God stops wars. He's the one who makes them stop. It may seem like it's because of of uh, the nations flexing their their uh, military muscles and stuff like that. No, God's making those wars stop. You consider that, church, and don't be afraid. You know, I was I was reading Judges chapter seven last week, and if you remember, it's the story of Gideon. Gideon is uh, is a judge of Israel, and God has raised him up in order to save Israel. They are under the oppression of the Midianites at this point. Okay, and God is going to use Gideon to go and basically uh, deliver Israel from the hands of the Midianites. But God's going to do something first. If you remember correctly, uh, the army of Israelites that uh, were with Gideon, uh, it was 32,000 soldiers. And God said, you got too many soldiers. You got too many. It's because God knows if they win with 32,000 soldiers, then it's going to be very easy for Israel to, to put all of the glory on them, right? It's going to be really easy for them to brag about themselves. Yeah, we got that done. We defeated the Midianites. You know, high fives all around, okay? They know that's, that's what they're going to be tempted to believe, that it was them that did it. So God says, now you got too many guys. So he gives them a way to trim that army down, right? And so he's down to 10,000 now. And God says, still too many gives them another way to trim that number down until there's only 300 men left, 300 soldiers. And uh, at least, um, this is probably a conservative number, but at least the, the, the number of soldiers in the Midianite army is in the tens of thousands, okay? And so God says, you go down there and um, you need, you are going to go out. I'm, I, he's, he's, he assures Gideon that this is going to happen. I'm going to deliver them into your hand, but that he must go down there with these 300 men. And here, they don't, uh, here's what they take down there with them trumpets and torches and jars. They've got these jars on top of the torches. And uh, all at once, these 300 men, they're kind of standing above the, the camp at night of the Midianite army. And they blow the trumpets all at once. And they break these jars that are over the torches. And they see all the torches light up. And what happens? This this army, this large army, you know what happens? They run away. They run away crying. They flee, right? 300 of them, they flee. And not a sword was used. Only jars, torches, and... Jars, torches, and trumpets. That's all that was used. Not a sword was used. So God, I mean, that amazes me because God stopped the war, stopped the battle before it even began. And no swords were used. And there was only 300 men. And that's the power of God. This is the kind of stuff that we should be considering so that we do not become fearful. Look at how God delivered his people with 300 men uh, without using a sword. So when we when we run into this verse in Psalm forty six, come behold the works of the Lord. Think things like that. Return to texts like that in the scriptures. He didn't need swords. He didn't need a lot of men. He stopped before it happened. Now we don't have a commentary on the on the battles and the wars that are taking place in our day and age, right? We don't have God coming along and saying, "This is why I'm doing this." You know, I, I you know, see how this happened. That was yeah, I did that for this reason. We don't have that. But we can look back in the Old Testament at the wars, and we can see why God does what he does, and we can consider that and know he's in control of it. The heirs of men, the world forces, and all that they're doing, he's, he's in charge of it. They don't exceed his authority. He's sovereign that is comforting. I even think about um, the fact that in in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the king of the major world power uh, during that time in history. I mean, he's the most powerful king in the world at that time. And you know what? God calls him Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. That's crazy to me. It's not because Nebuchadnezzar at that, at that point was repentant or, or he was worshiping God. And he was like a servant like, you know, we call ourselves servants of Christ. That's not what he means by servant. What he means by servant is I'm using this king for my own purposes. He's a pawn for me. I'm using him to do what I've planned to do. The greatest king in the world, the most powerful king in the world at that time, he's the servant of God because God's using him to do what he wants him to do, playing right into God's Amazing, these are the things you should be considering when you you become fearful of what's going on around you. Think of the control, the power, the sovereignty, the strength of God. Wars cease only when God stops them, right? Men rise to power only when God sovereignly places them there. Let those thoughts obliterate your fears, church. What would you tell a child? who is terrified of a thunderstorm, obviously just shaking with fear because of a thunderstorm that's taking place one night. What would you tell that child? Maybe something like this. God is in charge of that thunder and that lightning. There is no lightning bolt or a roll of thunder that God does not send into the sky. No lightning bolt, no roll of thunder that God does not send into the sky. We think he doesn't understand. Only kids are are scared of of thunderstorms, and we have to remind them of God's control over those things. Is it any less different for our fears? Is it? Is it any less? is Is it any different? Any different from our fears? A child looks at the sky and he quakes with fear. We turn on the TV and watch the news and we quake with fear. We still need the same truth, don't we? We still need the same truth. God is in charge of it all. God is in charge of it all. And you know what? Here's something else that, that should send our fears packing. Okay, I want you to look with me back at the text. Not only is God in charge of all of man's affairs, whether big or small, right? Geopolitical or everyday, really, is what we can consider. But here's what the second half of verse 10 says. Look at this. I will be exalted among the nations, this is God talking. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So here's something to obliterate your fears. God's sovereignty Is tied to his glory. God's sovereignty is tied to his glory. Okay? How can we be sure that God is sovereign and will continue to be sovereign over all that scares us in this world? How can we be sure? Because his glory is at stake, his namesake is on the line. He says, I will be exalted. He will be exalted. If he is not sovereign over the affairs of men, then he can't be exalted. And let me tell you something. Here's a verse you need to write down. Just write down this reference. Isaiah 48, 11. This is important. This is what God says in Isaiah 48:11. My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. So there's not going to be somebody that can overturn God's authority, pull the wool over his eyes, Somehow, somehow be stronger than he is. No. God will be exalted. And so because he will be exalted, we can be sure that he's going to sovereignly control all that takes place in this world because he's not going to give his glory to another. You See how that works? That's, that's the surety we have of his continued control. And let's not forget, verse 7, verse 11, this God is with you. with you. The Lord of hosts is with us. This is the God who's with us. It's not that he's just in control and has nothing to do with us. We have these verses. He is with us, those who have trusted in him. As I'm closing up here and ending, let me draw your attention to one final thing. We're told at the beginning of verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. It's Probably the most popular verse out of this psalm. Be still and know that I am God. Now, if you have the NAS translation, it reads, cease striving instead of be still. I think that's a better translation here. Cease striving instead of be still. And I think that because Right, the Hebrew words really literally mean cease striving, but the idea here is we often rely upon our own power. We often rely upon our own power in the face of our fears. We are we're depending on our coping mechanisms, right? Our coping mechanisms, the things that we do that help kind of make our, feel, our fears feel a little bit smaller. And God says, stop that. He doesn't want us to panic, but neither does he want us to continue in our own efforts of addressing or coping with our fears. We must turn our minds and hearts to who God is and what he has done, right? Be still, cease striving, and know that I am God. We, we can do things like, you know, I, I know for some of us our, our coping mechanism may be that we just have to overanalyze everything, Right? If I get to the bottom of it, then I can have peace and rest, right? Or maybe it's you prepare, and you prepare, and you prepare, and that's how you cope. I'll be ready for it, whatever it is when it comes. I'll be ready for my worst fear because I've spent so much time preparing. Cease striving. Know that he is God. He's the one that's supreme in authority. He's the one that's in control. Let that dispel your fears, Now, listen, church, here's a a, a way of application to this. Oftentimes when we open up the Bible, we're so obsessed with finding an application, right? I need to find a principle of application that I can practically apply to my life today. And I I love that emphasis, I do. I think it's important that we apply Scripture. But so often we're looking for the the practical application, the principle, the method uh, to, to put to work in our lives today that we forget to be still and consider who he is and what he's done. Right? Sometimes, church, many times I would say, we forget to consider him. The Bible's about him. It's it's not ultimately a self-help manual, so you can put these principles to work in your life and, and feel better. And, and it's kind of just a, th- a book of therapy. Not, it's not that. We, we can have principles that are, that are helpful for us, but it's a book about God and his glory and his plan of redemption and him calling out a people for himself. That's what the book is about. It's about him. And so sometimes the application, church, is just that we would adore God stand in awe of who he is and what he's done. Sometimes that's the application. That we would just, oh, this is the God who is there, and he is all these things for me, not because of my goodness, but because he is good, and he loves me in Christ. There's a text that I want you to consider um, in this. We, we, I skipped over on purpose. Um, I know I said that. I, I was closing with the last point. Sorry. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, if you look at verse 4, can I give you some some context here as we go into verse 5? The city of God, right, um, is where the people of God dwell. And verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her, He's, He's with His people. She shall not be moved. The people of God shall not be moved. In this text, we've got lots of things moving, don't we? We've got the mountains. Mountains are moving. We've got the waters. They're, they're moving. The, the nations, they're, they're moving. They're rising and falling. But here we find that those who trust in God, God's people, they will not be moved. Got all this other stuff moving. The people of God will not be shaken. The people of God will not be moved. See, one day, there's going to be a day when all wars cease, finally and forever, right? And we'll have reached that day. There will have been much moving in our lives, right? There'll have been much trial and tribulation and times of trouble. We'll We'll have reached that point with much trouble in this life. But in the end, we will still be with him. We'll have not moved away from his love. We'll have not moved away from his grace. We'll have not moved out of his family. He'll still be with us, right? No matter what comes, the wrath of God came, but it did not come on us, did it? If we've trusted in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God came, and Jesus was our refuge. is our refuge. See, ultimately, think about this. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. God is our refuge from God, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. He came and died, and God poured out all the anger that we deserved for our sin. He poured it out on His own Son so that we did not receive it. And so Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, becomes for us a refuge from the wrath of his Father that he poured out on his Son. And so it comes upon Jesus, but it doesn't come upon us. We're free. So is, is God a refuge and strength? Yes, he is. In times of trouble, yes. And And ultimately, in an ultimate sense, he's the refuge from the wrath of God that we deserve. If we're If Jesus Christ is our refuge from the wrath of God, is there anything anything else in life that that we could consider too much, right? Too, Too terrible, too terrifying? No. If Jesus Christ became for us a refuge from the wrath of God that we deserve by his sacrifice, then there's nothing else that he won't be a refuge for, that he won't... He won't help us in the midst of now. We will not be moved. We will not be moved because God is immovable and he is with us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Lord, this is all because of your grace, not because of our, our works, because our works, they were sinful works are sinful works They're not perfect we couldn't earn our way to you if we tried for a million years because we're sinners so all of this promise all of this help all of this strength is ours because of your grace given to us through Jesus who died in our place while we were still sinners we praise you for that and ask you to help us cling through these promises in the name of Jesus.